Hey, you're listening to the teaching portion of the Crossridge Women's Study in the Book of Revelation. This is part two from winter 2023. For more info about us and to access our resources, you can find us at crossridge.church forward slash W study. Let's just pray together and then we will jump into Revelation 16 and 17. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your love, that you are holy and just, that your word is true. And we confess that we get it wrong often, that we think we know the way things should go. And because of that, uh, sometimes some of the weightier aspects of your character um, maybe make us confused or frustrated and maybe at times even embarrassed. And so I just pray tonight as we look at these chapters of Revelation, that we look at this concept of your wrath being poured out, that by your spirit you would speak truth to our hearts and uh, that you would open our eyes and ears to see the beauty of salvation and um, and also just be aware of the judgment that, that affords freedom to um, humanity enslaved by sin. God, we thank you um, that we can come together, that we can open your word, that you speak through it. And um, I just pray that you'll be with all the women who are still on their way and who can't come, that you would just continue to build us into a community of women who are shaped by the word and who know you and who love you and love the people around us because of it. In your name we pray, amen. Okay. So I mentioned last time when we got together that John has this interesting technique of sort of explaining backwards. And I heard a, a, a Revelation commentator say a couple weeks ago that people should read Revelation backwards. And I've, I've been thinking about that, and it makes a lot of sense to me, actually, because when you start at the end and then you go backwards, it, you seem to understand things more. So what I mean by that is, is as we go through the second half of Revelation, we are all of a sudden understanding things that we sort of understood this much in the first half, but it's bringing light to um, what we've already studied. And even so tonight, as we get into chapter 17, Next week, as we get into chapter 18, it is going to really impact our understanding and sort of open up our understanding of, of chapters um, 16 and 17 that we talk about tonight. And maybe that's just the nature of the apocalyptic sort of unveiling, right? That's what we said revelation um, means. An apocalypse is actually just an unveiling. And slowly, John is making things known to us. And so as we go deeper into the book, we feel like, oh, we understand some things that we, we heard before. And, and it might feel a little bit like that tonight because I think uh, chapter 16 and the bowls, the cycle of the bowls reminds us a lot of what we've seen before. And it goes through a lot. There's a lot of similarities. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, so, yes, we're in chapter 16. The, the bowl judgments or the bowls of, of God's wrath. So chapter 16, verse 1, starts like this. I'm just going to read verse 1, that's it. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, 
go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. So already you're like, oh yeah, I'm glad I came to study. We're talking about God's wrath tonight. Super um, light topic. I was, I told um, Sam at work today that like I, I've just been struggling. I've had a really difficult week and then um, I had to take Monday to just Sabbath because of my weekend was so insane. And then, so I thought, oh, I can work on Tuesday and just make sure I'm prepared for study. And then I ended up being in the ER with my daughter yesterday. So today I was like, Lord, I am not prepared. And he's like, oh, it's no big deal. You're just talking about the wrath of God. Like, just easy, light topic. You can just do that off the cuff. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but what is wrath? What is wrath when you think about wrath and I think it's really good this I'm not even sure I've read it in a few places but theologians often um, describe it as God's settled disposition against sin and evil Um, but more than just what is it I think it's good for us to think how do we feel about it how do we feel about God being a wrathful God Anybody want to be honest? It's not as fun as thinking about him as a loving God. Yeah, that's right. There's other characters, characteristics of God that we could just... We never sing about it. We don't sing about the wrath of God. I, I have sung about the wrath of God in some old hymns. I'm sure of it. But yeah. Yeah, I think we could feel confused partly because of those other um, characteristics of God, right? We know he is loving. So why do we have to talk about him having wrath? And how can he actually be loving if, if he has wrath? I think sometimes uh, when, we, when I think of wrath, it's uncontrolled. Yes, there we go. And um, in, in anger and not necessarily righteous anger. So mm-hmm. that's hard to... If you've got that concept that that's what wrath is, it's hard to put that um, under God's character. Yeah. So we sort of um, put on God our own, yeah, how, ex- we, yeah. how we express it. Yeah. Yes. Which is not, we'll see tonight, which is not what we see in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. How about for me? I have- Yeah. So that I can think, and I think in the text, like it often goes back to the persecution of the saints, and like yes, and then in that context, something about that settled me. Yes, I think about the persecuted church in China. Or yes, for sure. No, it, something has to be done. Something has to be done. It it is actually good news. I heard I heard someone say, or I read it somewhere, that to to want to do away with the wrath of God is a privilege of those with power. And who have never been oppressed. Because if you have been an oppressed people or are vulnerable, you actually need that exact thing. You need injustice dealt with, right? So that is a good, that's, I think that's a, that's a good way for us to think about it. Yeah. And then maybe just a, a misunderstanding or, or not even misunderstanding. Maybe, maybe we don't have a full understanding of how to express it, to talk about it with others would make us feel embarrassed, especially if it's our family or friends who are not Christians or who don't know a lot, a lot about God and, and this idea of 
of God's wrath. Like that's not an easy one to to talk about if you don't feel settled in in what it means and why God has wrath and what the answer um, I think the to it thing is. thing is we really have to have another look of what the Lord considers sin. Y- yes. Because we yeah. won't have a really good idea yeah. of what he considers sin, or at least I don't. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, um, I would definitely say that a lot of our discomfort with the idea of wrath comes from a, like a weak view or an incomplete view, maybe, of sin. Yeah. Or an understanding of what, what sin is to God. Yeah. Like, we might do something and think, it's yeah. nothing. That's yeah. not how he looks at yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. That's basically my teaching. You guys just gave it there <laughs> tonight, so thank you. No, we're going to talk a bit about more about these things later, but um, let's move on to doing some observation together. So we're going to open up our Bibles, and we're going to open up our books. Um to, I don't know what page it is. The page, I can find it here, but I don't have the right page numbers. So the first page of the study this week. 23? Yeah, 23. And then if you turn it over to, is it 20? Yeah, turn over to 25, 26. So get that open. Get your Bible open to chapter 16. Um, so one of the big things that we have to remember when it comes to learning or thinking about God's wrath is it really matters how we study the Bible, okay? Uh, it really matters that we can't parachute or that we don't parachute into passages. Imagine if you had no context for the Bible and you opened up to Revelation 16 and that was your first picture of God, Right? And if you just sort of were dropped into Revelation 16, not a, not a great idea. Um, we also say that that context is key. We, that's what, we need a bigger context. And there's a, um, a theologian named Scott McKnight in a, a Bible sort of, he writes a lot about how to study the Bible. And he says, he says the best principle for, for studying the Bible is this, never read a Bible verse. Never read a Bible verse. Only read the full passage or the full book in context of the entire Bible, right? Because when we parachute into things like this, it can cause us trouble. So I thought we should see tonight, um, let's do that. Let's practice that skill. And let's see how chapter 16 connects to what comes before it, what has come before it in the whole book of Revelation, and then what comes before it in the whole of the Bible. And we're going to um, take a look at connections and context tonight together. Um, so the, one of the first questions I often ask, and I didn't really ask it this week, I asked it in a bit of a different way, but you've probably read many times, um, how does this passage connect to what just came before? Uh, it's one of the first things that we often like to say to keep this context. Uh, so let's let's back it up though, and let's let's start this way. And I'm going to ask you: How does chapter 16 connect to the whole Bible? How do you see it connecting to other parts of the biblical story? And probably how you'd find your answer in this is to look at cross references or allusions or themes. So if you look down in your um, study guide there on page 25, uh, I had a list of, of cross references and. And um, I hope you read them in Revelation. I've, I've said this quite a few times, but if you can't do anything else, the best thing to do in Revelation is to read the cross-references. And unfortunately, I can't put, I, there's not room for me or usually 
like it's too much time for me to put every single cross-reference in but if you have a good study bible you also have a lot of good cross-references in your study bible and it's one of the best things you can do is to see what john is pointing back to elsewhere in scripture um, so if i were to ask you for chapter 16 the bold judgments what is the most helpful cross-reference do you think to the rest of the bible what would you say Yes, Moses and Exodus, the plagues of Egypt, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, so let's go through that then, and let's just go through these seven bowls, and let's look in each one and see what parallels we see to the bowls of Egypt. And then that will kind of say, and we're going to ask, ask the question, I guess, how does knowing that this is pointing back to Exodus and what we know about that story help us to understand? Okay, so first of all, let's start with the first bowl. What parallel do you see in the first bowl that you would say this is from the plagues of Egypt? Yeah, boils or sores, right? Some say boils, some say sores. And what, what do the boils do to the people? Yeah, they're painful. That's kind of a funny way to ask the question. I don't know why I said that, but... Um, can you think of a theme in the rest of Revelation that this idea of people getting these painful boils on them, how it might point to other themes that we've seen already in Revelation? Does it connect to marking? I think it does. I think it connects to marking. Yeah, it's a mark. I, I sort of do, and I, the reason why I think it does is because it says it in the passage, right? So they get these painful, severe um, sores, they break out on who? People with the mark. On the people who have the mark of the beast. Yeah, so there's this sense that people who are marked by the beast, then God sort of gives them a mark. And this is the theme we're going to see throughout um, the bowls. And it's a theme we see in Egypt that God hands, like hands Pharaoh over, right? God hardens Pharaoh's heart. In Romans, it talks about God handing over people to their sin. Like after a while, he says, this is what you want? Okay, I'll, I'll hand you over to that. And there's a real, um, there's sort of a theme through the Bible that, like when we talk about the judgment of God, we think of something that is very active, and yet there is something even more terrifying if you think about God's judgment as passive, of him removing his hand is actually a more terrifying thought, that God removes his mercy that he removes his care, and that he would hand people over and say, you're choosing sin? Okay. You're choosing the mark of the beast. I will, I will let you choose that. That's actually a more severe judgment um, in light of his great mercy and love for, the, for his people and for all people, all, all of creation. Um, yeah, so I think it is. it signifies the marking theme, and we said it's poured out on those who are marked by the beast. Okay, let's look at um, second bowl. How does it relate? Yes, the Nile, right? The water to blood. And actually, it's the second bowl and the third bowl, isn't it? Because first of all, it's the sea to blood, and then it's the rivers and springs of water. So all the water. What would you say blood signifies? Life. Often in the Bible, it signifies life. But also death. But also death. Yes, 
Yeah. And a lot of commentators think that the, the, um, the significance of the water all being turned to blood is that the water for these people, for the original reader and the people in the ancient Near East, that was their method or their, their means of commerce. This was their economy, right? This is how they bought and sold goods. This was their trade um, avenues or roads, right? Was on ships. Yeah, so it's, it's this picture of the economic systems of man. Like what man trusts in money and their own ability to, um, yeah, market or whatever, apart from God. Instead of trusting in God, it's this idea of trusting in, I would say, mammon, I guess. Okay, how about the fourth bull? Yeah, that the oh, that's the fifth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I think there is something in there about the sun, because in the Exodus plagues, the sun goes dark, which is sort of the darkness of the next. So you could, I think you can connect it to that fifth bowl. But I also think it's good to remember back um, the plagues of Egypt, and lots of us probably know this, but um, there's a lot of research been done and writing about how the plagues of Egypt attacked who? in particular. Not just the people, and it wasn't just against Pharaoh, but God was demonstrating his power against what else? The gods of Egypt, right? Because each of the plagues, you can kind of go through, there's these charts, and you can line it up and and say which god of Egypt that that the Lord God Almighty was sort of targeting with the plague. Um, So it's sort of this picture, um, because in Egypt... The sun god, Ra, was sort of the pinnacle of their idolatry, right? So here in Revelation, when John is pointing back to that, or he, he, is, he is pointed back to that in his vision, it's this idea of idolatry is being judged. Um, the idolatry of mankind is being burnt up. And that's, that's actually what happens in 17. You probably remember, that's what happens to the woman, right? She's devoured by the beast and burnt up. Mm -hmm. Okay, so moving on to the fifth bowl, we said darkness. Um, God's wrath is poured out on who in the fifth bowl? Yeah, the throne or the kingdom of the beast. And then we said the, the result there is darkness. What do you think that darkness might signify? Like in the plagues of Egypt, but also here. When you think about that. Deception. Deception, because you can't see, right? Yeah, I was thinking blindness, sort of the same idea. I think it also um, talks about separation. If you go back and read in, in the Exodus plagues, there's a weird line in it, and it says that when the sun was struck and the whole land was dark, people couldn't even see each other. And there's idea of, of separation, right? Um, that God separates people from each other um, because sin separates people from each other and from him too as the one true king in their idolatry of, of worshipping um, idols. Okay. Chaos as well. Chaos, definitely chaos. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we're seeing sort of this theme of God is handing over the people to sort of what they um, have been moving towards or longing not really longing for but what they're moving towards in their sin how about the sixth bowl then what connects 
how do you see the Red Sea? Yeah, okay. So a Euphrates is dried up in the same way the Red Sea was dried up? Good. We'll talk about that in a minute. What else? Frogs. Frogs, yes. Yeah. So remember in Egypt, um, the frogs were that, that one plague that the magicians of Egypt could also copy, right? They could conjure up their own frogs, um, which just made everything worse, but they could fake that. And so um, lots of commentators think that this is signifying, and also that the frogs come out of the mouths, it's, it, that, they think that is talking about deception, or this idea of the false prophecy. Yeah. Okay, we're going to come back to the seventh pole. But um, I think broadly we can see that the, the Exodus plagues, the connection that we see there, teaches us that salvation does come for God's people then through judgment. And that's what I've been saying that so many times, and it probably just, you've blocked it out now or something. But um, it's really important to see through Revelation 2 that that God provides salvation. It's not just this, like we we talk about it as a free gift, don't we? Um, And it's, it's not. It comes at a cost. And the cost that, that Jesus paid was judgment for us. Judgment needs to be paid. And so salvation always comes through judgment. The people were saved out of Egypt through the judgment on Egypt and the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh and his armies and the people who were oppressing him. Yeah. So the way God saves and heals the world is actually by pouring out his wrath on evil on injustice. He destroys whatever is destroying the life of, of his creation. Um, and that sounds terrible, but if we should take comfort in that, knowing that he, he wants to, he has a settled disposition against all the evil that is oppressing us and that is breaking down uh, relationship, that is destroying love and peace and joy and everything that is good. He is against it. He's against it. Okay, um, so in Exodus, it was the gods of Egypt, and it was Pharaoh, and in the final judgment that we're reading about here in Revelation, it is on all idolatry and the kingdom of the beast and everything that falls in line with that kingdom. Okay, so now let's think about how does chapter 16 fit into the context of the whole book of Revelation? So first, how does it connect, do you think, to what came immediately before? So if you look at the beginning of 16 and then you go back and look at what came before, how do you see 16 fitting in with what came before it in the book? Yeah, so the angels are holding the plagues. Go ahead now. Sorry, around the throne of God. What do we notice about, what do we observe about the angels? What does John tell us that he sees? How they're clothed. How they're clothed, right. And how are they clothed? Pure white garments. They have golden sashes. They're supposed to, uh, the original reader would have thought, oh, they're dressed like priests. Yeah, they're dressed like the priests. So this is a priestly work that is happening okay these are not like renegade angels who have these bowls of wrath this is 
a holy and priestly thing that is being done, God's wrath being poured out. Yeah. What else do you observe that connects, do you think? So besides the angels, anything else? Actually, one more thing I should say, and maybe this connects to what, what Sharon just said. We don't see it's not a rash. In this idea that it's this priestly act is, is being done and everything in the temple, um, you know how the temple had the, you know, the way that everything had to be done with the priest wearing the certain thing. So the connection to the priest says that this is operating, okay, I'm just going to say it this way, but according to protocol. Do you know what I mean? It's not this rash thing that we think about, like Sharon said, often when we think about wrath, it's like reactive and rash, and, and it's not. It is just moving forward in this priestly, holy manner. Yeah, and, and actually, for that, we could even go back and, and say that we've heard about the devil having fury or wrath, right? And that's causing him to, like, pursue people, and, and this is, like, something very different. It's holy. It's coming out of where? The temple, yeah. So the temple has been opened. Uh, it's filled with smoke, which in the Old Testament always signified the presence or the holiness of God. So somehow the wrath of God originates in this idea of the presence of God with man, because that's what the temple theme is about, right? The temple theme in the Old Testament is, how's God going to live with man and woman, humanity? How, is, how are we going to bring God together to live with humanity? And the temple is what does it. So both the, the bold judgments proceed from this idea of, of God's presence and needing to be with uh, humanity. So somehow, for God to be with man, God's wrath has to be poured out. It has to. Verse 8 um, says, And then no one could enter until the plagues were completed. Nobody can have oneness with God. Nobody can be in the presence of God until these plagues are completed, until God's wrath has been satisfied. Okay. Um, anything else we see that maybe connects? Kind of looks like a, like a pursuit of, his, of people, too, because the, um, the song that the angels are singing is like, who shall not fear you? Like, all nations will come worship before you. And then going into the Bowls, you see, like God pursuing them, yes, and then them saying, No, we don't want it. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Pursuing them, no. Yes, okay. and so they're saying no, and yet, yeah, and and in the pursuit, there's the two we'll talk about this later, but there's two responses, right? And later on, we see they're saying, like, No, but here in 15, there's they're actually worshiping the bowls of wrath. Right? They're worshiping that this is going to happen. They're saying, great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God. They're celebrating. Sorry, I don't know if I said wor- they're worshiping. Did I say they're worshiping God's wrath? Sorry, all of a sudden that just echoed in the back of my head. They're celebrating the fact that God is going to pour out his wrath. This is, heaven thinks this is a good thing. It's important for us to see that, I think. Right? Heaven is not saying, oh, man, this is really bad. Like, I'm glad I'm not around for this. No, they're saying, like, bring it. It's beautiful. It's holy. It's righteous. Yeah, right. Sure. More chances. More chances, yeah. And it keeps saying they refuse to repent. Yes, well, and that, when we'll get to that, too. 
That's right, that's what Tally was saying, and there are two different responses, right? Yeah, okay, well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but let's, let's answer this first then. In your homework, uh, it's question number six. So how do you see, and actually I didn't ask it this way, but how does it connect to before 15, the, the rest of Revelation? How do you see 16 paralleling parts of what else you've seen in Revelation? What did you notice? Seven, just like the seven seals. Yeah, it's another cycle of seven, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had seven seals, we had seven trumpets, now we're at seven bowls. Yeah, that's the most important thing to see. We've been saying since the beginning that Revelation does something called recapitulation. It's not linear. It's recapitulation, which means it just keeps going around in a circle. I'm going to read you this quote. This is from Nancy Guthrie, and this is what she says. Every cycle we've witnessed so far has taken us through the span of redemptive history and leading up to the final judgment and salvation of God's people. So we've already seen this cycle through the whole redemptive history leading up to final judgment. We saw it in the seals, we saw it in the trumpets, and we saw it in the bulls. And something helpful to think is that some scholars or writers about Revelation, they see that we we just see it Um, in a new perspective. So we talked about recapitulation, like you are looking into the same room, but you're looking through different windows. So when you look here, you see this perspective. When you look over there and you look in, you see a different perspective of the room, but it's the same room. And when you go to the other side, then you look and, and, and if you're a sports person, you could say this, Nancy Guthrie, she uses this. She says, it's like instant replay. Have you ever been watching a sports thing? Okay, I watched hockey last night with my husband and son. And they have all the replays from the different angles and, and your husband and son are yelling, we need a different angle. We need to see the top angle, right? Like, because you, you're looking at the same thing, but from a different angle. And that's basically recapitulation. So here's the different perspectives, perhaps, that some people say um, that we see. So the perspective of the seat from, with the, when it comes to the seven seals is the perspective of the suffering church. That's how they see God, like, redeeming the world, And the trumpets, they say, it's the perspective of the world who are being called to repent. Remember we said that the trumpets are a lot about warning. Warning, warning. Repent, repent. It's your, you, this is your chance. Turn back to God. So the trumpets are the perspective of the world that is called to repentance. And then the bowls, um, the perspective of the throne room of God. And how God is looking and saying, okay, now here's... Here's how it goes. What other parallels do you see then to other to the other cycles of seven? The end of the cycle. The end of the cycle. What did you notice about the end of the cycle? Um, like you see the same flashes of lightning yeah. and then rumblings and throws of thunder. Yes, it's it's in every it ends every single uh, cycle of seven, doesn't it? Good. What else? And how do you see that in the bowls? Um, oh, maybe not. Oh, well, he says, isn't there, um, only in the next section, or is he saying, like, in chapter 17, and those listening are all the children? Yeah, yes. Yeah, you see it in 17, yeah. But oh, from there, like, with the boils? Yeah, only those who have the mark of the beast. So I would say that's where you could say, yeah. And, and that just sort of hints that 
there are people who, we, and we already know, there are people with other marks, right? And those are the ones that are sealed. And also the altar. Mm-hmm. Yes, what about the altar? It's saying, yes, Lord God. Yeah. Yes. So, so that sort of speaks Yes, uh, it also speaks to the fifth seal, remember? Mm-hmm. We, that's the last time we saw the altar, when we saw the souls of the martyrs were underneath the altar and they're crying out, how long, O oh Lord, right? How long are we going to suffer and all these people are going to get away with evil and injustice? So it does connect us back to that. Um, early on, I would say, when it comes to that, early on in the bowls, we have questions about God's wrath. We're like, wait a minute, God's pouring out his, his, these bowls of his wrath and you get to the third bowl, he's pouring out. And you're like, is this a good idea? Is this just? Like, is this loving? Is this fair? All the things that we talked about at the beginning. And I think it's super interesting that John stops to answer the question with this little bit about the altar Um, because the question is is it just is this just and who answers in that section there besides the altar no first of all the angels yeah so the angels answer and they say you are just and they've deserved it right they say they've poured out blood they have killed your enemies and so they deserve what you are giving them and then the altar speaks and what does the altar say about god's true and just the same thing that's right so all of this wrath that is being poured out guess what it's the answer to the cry of the martyrs from the fifth seal now god is answering how long O lord till now um And and it's just like, it reminds me then, thinking back to the Exodus plagues, it's a response, or it's in response, like, to the cries of God's people. God says, I heard the cries of my people, I looked down, I saw they were being oppressed, so I went down and helped them. That's what he says in Exodus, right? And it's the same thing here. He sees the oppression by evil, he hears the cry of the martyrs, and he brings justice as a way out, as a way to salvation. It's the same story, isn't it? Um, So... Okay, anything else there? I think that the angels have like a protagonic role, like they're protagonists then. Yes, yes. Yeah, we've seen that sort of before, don't we? They do have an important role. I th- I, and here you really see it as priestly, which just reminds you of like mission and role of God. And when we talk about priests in our um, tradition, it kind of gets tricky, right? Because we think about priests and we think about Catholic priests. But really, the biblical idea of priesthood is Adam and Eve. They were the first priests. They were in the garden, and God gave them a a job to do, rule and subdue. And from that time on, humanity, God's people, have had this role as as priests to to image him and to care for his, his world and to show him to everyone, to the nations, basically, is how the Old Testament um, puts it, yeah. Can we go back quickly? Uh, two things. So Jean mentioned before the response of the people. Okay, so we, we saw the response of the angel and the altar. What's the contrasting response? Pardon me? Cursing. Cursing, yeah. Blaspheming. And what does it say, like, a few times? They did not repent, they did not repent. right? I think it's really important to see in this final judgment when God is finally saying, okay, time's up, I'm pouring out full judgment. It is on the people who, even after seeing all of his power, even after seeing all of his works, even after seeing the plagues come, 
What do they do? They blame God and they blaspheme him and they refuse to repent. So some writers about Revelation, I've seen um, people say there's nobody who is experiencing this curse that is saying, wait a minute, no, 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 I didn't mean it. I actually didn't mean it. Like, I changed my mind. Like, everyone here who is experiencing it is still saying, no, I refuse to repent, and I blaspheme, and I blame you instead of trusting God. Yeah. One, um, let's go back. Uh, Heather, one, one last thing. Heather talked about the Euphrates River being dried up as being sort of a, you know, a similar to the Nile being dried up. So do you know that that's this, what this is about? Did they want to do any reading? Yep, it's the kings of these coming. But I've been hearing that parts of Euphrates is dry. It is. It is a gap. It is. Yeah. And also, it's God's allowing the enemies to come, right, by drying up the Euphrates. So here's some interesting Old Testament, should have been in the cross-references, but um, in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 44, it talks about when Babylon in the Old Testament, the actual Babylon, was defeated. Here's how it was defeated. Do you know who defeated Babylon? Yes, yeah, so the Persians. What was his name? It was Cyrus, yes, King Cyrus. So what happened, how King Cyrus defeated, he, he, comes, he came from the east, right? They were Babylon's enemies from the east. And the history books say, and actually the Bible says, they, they diverted the waters of the Euphrates because Babylon sat in a pretty good situation to the east. They were, the Euphrates basically protected them. No one could cross it to get to them. And what Cyrus and his armies did is they diverted the waters of the Euphrates so the water level went down and they, their soldiers waded through into and took over the city of Babylon. And that's how Babylon was destroyed in, I don't know, when is it? 539, 536? 538, somewhere in there, um, B.C. So basically what has happened is John's vision takes this Old Testament account that the people know about of Babylon, how Babylon was actually defeated, and he said at the end of time, Babylon is going to be defeated once for all. So when they read that, they know it's the story of Babylon's defeat, and they're saying God will once, once and for all. At the end of time, Babylon will be defeated. His enemies will be defeated. And, you know, this is the interesting thing is like God dries up the Euphrates and he allows the kings to come gather to make war against him. I cannot wait for you to read about the war. It is so anticlimactic every time. It is amazing. If you think that Revelation is full of all these great battles where we're going to go fight against like... Just, you have to read 18 to 22. It's amazing. Yeah. So if you're gearing up for battle, just, yeah. It's, it'll be amazing to see. And I don't want to um, interrupt what you're saying, but we keep saying that they will know that when they hear this, they will know. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we've had scripture. Yes. And we have read it. Yes. They did not have that. I mean, the, the, the priests did. The priests did. The, the common people. Yes. So I'm just wondering how they knew s- so much because it's a lot to take to take in. It is. 
Have you ever been to a Jewish bar mitzvah? Anybody? My friend's son, I went when he was eight, 13, 12, 12. I went to his Jewish bar mitzvah. And for an hour and a half, we sat and listened to him recite the scroll of Isaiah. He was 12. Yeah. So this was a part of them. They knew their history. And yes, they don't have this. We are, we are definitely a culture that we, we can't do without. I mean, it's, it's not even the book anymore, is it? It's this. We can't do with, with, without our information being like this. But in the ancient Near East, everything was here. And yes, the priests knew they, they, to be a priest, you had to have all, and that's what you did. So the people who were, I would say, the people who were dispersed, who were living in Rome, they, they were desperate to hear, and they would go to the places where people could recite, and they would recite what they knew. And so they knew, they did know their history. Yeah. And there's lots of, when, when you study, it's, I think what makes you understand that is seeing how time and time again, the biblical authors are actually writing when you know the story of the original reader and what their circumstances were, you see that he is writing to them and on all the time pointing to all these other things that they would have known about. Yeah. And specifically big things like this isn't like, oh, did they know that Jeremiah laid on his side for seven years, you know, and then flipped to the other side? Maybe not. But did they know about the plagues of Egypt? One hundred percent. Everyone knew that. Right. And did they know about like Babylon's defeat that actually when Cyrus, this is why, like, this is an important story. Right. This is when Cyrus did what? led the Jews back to rebuild um, the walls of the temple with Ezra and Nehemiah. So some of these things that they use, that's why they're using those monumental, I would say. Uh, there's probably some people that didn't, though. And, and maybe especially the people that were like nominal or not really following, right? Yeah. For, for the most part, Bible scholars say, like that, the original reader, they did know their scripture. They did, yeah. That puts us to shame. Actually, I think it does. Yeah. Well, that's how I felt at that bar mitzvah. Yeah. Because, I mean, that was before I, yeah, that was before 2009 when I started reading my Bible every day. At that point, it was sort of like, you know, if you went to summer camp or had a particular inspiring, week, inspiring weekend or something. Yeah, definitely. That put me to shame. Okay, uh, we need to move into our groups because, oh, it's 7.52. So let's, um, let's just talk about the seventh bowl because we haven't said anything about that. So I'm going to skip a whole bunch here. Um, something that you can just think about is why is there no interlude? Or is there an interlude? This is something that's different from the bowls to every other cycle. We always had this interlude, and here in the bowls, there isn't. Or is there, I don't know, you could argue that that hymn that Tally was talking about at the beginning, is that the interlude at the beginning? Um, or is it the blessing that John inserts there into the sixth bowl? But I think it's, we can say with certainty, the seventh bowl just comes right away after the sixth, which that has never happened before in any of our cycles. Um, and so looking at that, what is wrath poured out on? The air. Did anyone have any thoughts about what that signified? Satan being like the prince 
Yeah, that's really good. That like that's an insight we have as New Testament believers, right? The Bible says Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Yeah, very good. And I think in the Old Testament imagination, especially this apocalyptic imagination that they had, and we've talked about this before when we talk about the theme of heaven and earth, that like sort of the air is this space between heaven and earth. And it is what it is maybe, it's the barrier between. And what's the whole story of the Bible is to reunite heaven and earth, to bring them together. So here the seventh bowl is poured out onto the air and it's almost like signifying breaking the barrier so that heaven and earth can be reunited once again as it was in the beginning with God dwelling with humanity. Yeah. Okay, one other important cross-reference or allusion that we read in there is what, is, what does the voice say in the seventh bowl? It is done. And what does that remind you of? It is finished. Yeah, the cross, right? Which this is what we say, that the... The wrath of God was satisfied. That's what we sing. We actually do sing about wrath. There you go. <laughs> At the cross, right? God's wrath was poured out. Kind of the beginning of it was poured out at the cross. You could say this judgment on, on people like of God's wrath was inaugurated on the cross, but that it will be consummated at the end of days. Yeah. Okay, let's go into our small groups for... We're going to go for 20 minutes, and um, I'm going to have you in your small groups. You're going to talk about Chapter 17. So your group leaders have the questions, and uh, yeah, let's go to that till quarter after. This week in our small groups, we answered some of the observation questions out of our study guide about this central character of Chapter 17, a woman, the harlot, riding a scarlet beast. And we used our observations to launch us into interpretation, where we asked the question, what does John mean by this? What is it he wanted his original reader to understand through this imagery of the woman and the beast? Then we heard from one of our table leaders and, and she talked a bit about Babylon the Great. She gave us her personal application out of her study this week about how she identifies the influence of Babylon the Great in her own life and some of the practices she pursues in order to guard against this influence. And finally, after a few more words about Babylon the Great, we talked about the good news of the wrath of God. Yeah, thank you. I loved how you said... Um, talked about your heart and your desire and things that captivated you and I think it's really really important that's the important takeaway I think that we should see as describing Babylon the Great as this great prostitute we have to understand that her it's not just about influencing us the world is not just about influ is is not trying to influence but to seduce us and you know we we said this about this this idea of sexual immorality, it's, I actually don't think it's about sexual immorality. Like, I think that a lot of us in our conservative church traditions, we, we just see that, like, oh, she, um, you know, it's her adultery, so this is about adultery. Oh, good, I'm not an adulterer. <laughs> Right? That we can think that way. And when we, we look in the Bible and we see these themes of sexual immorality, 
Revelation has brought, this is one, if, if you said, what's the one thing you learned the most? I would just see this picture of sexual immorality throughout the Bible is not about sex. It is about fidelity. And we want to limit it into this. And I, I think this is like, I, I'm really glad. Like you, that came through to you and all these ideas of my heart and my loves and what's captivating me because she wants to seduce. And, you know, Jean said at the beginning, we have, maybe we don't understand sin enough. And I, I really like, there's a, a quote by Daryl Johnson. He's, he says that we have to start seeing sin for what it is and, and that it is adultery against God. It breaks relationship with him. And we, we do this thing, I think, where we think it's like, what, what do we say about it? It's falling short or it's missing the mark. And it's, these, it's individualist and it's behavioral, right? And we talk about this a lot, about you know, sin being just like, oh, all the, the check marks, right? And oh, we don't do those things. But, but sin, um, you know, just in our attitudes and in loving other things and wanting position in wanting influence in wanting fame and wanting to elevate ourselves above God and to ha- make our own way and to reach for our own way and our make ourselves great. Basically, where does the story of Babylon start? Babel. Yes. Let's make a tower for ourselves. Let's make a great name for ourselves. So, do we deal with Babylon in our culture? Do you see people trying to make a great name for themselves? Like, that's what, that's what it's about, isn't it? Everybody's building a platform, right? You want to be the one that you, you know, everybody's drawn to you. You're the influencer. You're the whatever. And whatever it is, from beeswax to... CrossFit, I don't know, (laughs) right? So I I do think we need to see this theme of seduction. So I'm I'm thankful that Heather saw that. So this idea that sin is not just about like missing this mark, this individualistic behavior, but that sin is profoundly relational. It is adultery. And it causes separation and broken relationship between God and ourselves. And you know what? We always say this to our kids, sin separates. It also causes profound relational separation between human beings, doesn't it? Yeah. So this calls for um, yeah, faithfulness and fidelity to the Lamb. Intimacy, love, and devotion. Think about your relationship with Jesus. Right? Do you have that kind of of intimate relationship with Jesus that you would be okay with people describing it as like a marriage, that kind of intimacy. Um, let's just say that we, we don't have time. So <laughs> this is what I say every time, isn't it? Um, yes. We are going to see in chapter 18, the fall of this woman the fall of Babylon the Great. Um, She basically, I think, embodies or is an image of what John has been saying throughout the whole book of Satan's three tools that oppresses the followers of God. Seduction, persecution, and deception, right? We we talked about the seduction. She's called a prostitute. She has the, uh, the cup filled with the abominations of her adultery or the filth of her adultery. She has this uh, blasphemous name in, in, emboldened on her 
on her head or whatever, this idea of deception saying like that she is worthy of worship and she is murderous, right? She is drunk with the blood of the saints. So she is persecuting the people of God. Um, And this is why John is saying the whole way through, this calls for endurance, this calls for wisdom, and this calls for faithfulness or fidelity. I just, I think it just all goes together uh, once again. But God's wrath will be poured out on the great prostitute. We're going to see her, her demise. And we, we've already, it's already hinted at it here. But Babylon is going to fall. As Babylon fell many times over the course of history and will continue to fall until one day all forms of Babel of humanity wanting to make their name great, exalting themselves above God, will all um, be destroyed um, as God's wrath is poured out on evil itself. So let's just end with um, four things. There might be five about, about wrath, but they are very short. Okay, we, we have not really heard about these bowls of wrath anywhere else in the Bible, but we have heard about the cup of God's wrath. Uh, Isaiah 51, 17 in the Old Testament puts the cup of God's wrath in his extended hand and it says that for those who have to drink from it, it is a cup of staggering, okay? Just meaning it's like a fearsome thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. That's how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Psalm 75, 8 says that when God pours this cup of wrath that all the wicked of the earth will drink, and they will drain it down to the dregs, okay? So it's bad news. It's bad news. All the wicked deserve this, the cup of God's wrath. We actually deserve the cup of God's wrath. But here enters the good news of the gospel, does it not? 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says this, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And where in the New Testament do you see the the cup of God's wrath? Before the cross, where do you see it? Yeah, and in the garden, right? Matthew 26, Jesus said, Father, if it's possible, what? Let this cup pass from me. However, not my will, but your will be done. Um, now, because of that, then we say, and we sing, the wrath of God was satisfied, right? We drink the cup of salvation because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. Yeah. And so who can stand as God's wrath is being poured out at the end of time, final judgment after there is no more interludes, there's no more patience. We've given you all the time to repent, or God has given all the time to repent, and now he will judge all sin and evil. Who can stand? Yeah, those who are sealed by the blood of the Lamb, who have washed their clothes, right, in his blood and made themselves righteous. Those who have drank from the cup of salvation because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. Yeah. Thanks be to God. Right? Yeah. Amen. Uh, Let's just close tonight with, well, let me pray for you, and then you can just take a couple minutes to pray for each other. I would encourage you always to, if you know you have needs, um, to pray. But also, it's really good just to pray this idea of God's wrath. There are so many reasons why we can be thankful, we just said. 
why we can praise God for wrath, how we can lament it. We can cry out to people who maybe are still under the wrath of God, who need to know the freedom that comes um, by trusting in Jesus um, to drink that cup for them. We can pray for them. Um, and then we can ask him to, yeah, help us to live a life that is not seduced by Babylon and whose, whose hearts are faithfully pursuing him every day. Now let me just pray for you. Lord God, we are thankful. Uh, we have so much to be thankful for, and yet just um, most of all, our number one need, that you have satisfied the wrath of God so that we can be um, in your presence, that we can have relationship with you, the kind of relationship that we're going to see um, throughout the end of Revelation that is like, um, yeah, just like that we never will have to thirst again that there is no more tears and no more, no more sorrow, that we will not be scorched by the sun's heat. All this picture of, of uh, the seventh trumpet and what we will see going into Revelation, this beautiful idea of, of being the bride of Christ and having um, intimacy revealed. God, we have but a shadow of it here on earth, and we are thankful for your Holy Spirit by which we can experience your presence day by day. That through these things, um, we say they're cliche, but it's actually just simple and ancient that we can fast and pray, that we can spend time reading these, these age-old scriptures that have not failed, that we can um, just abide in you through some of these spiritual habits that we've been talking about, God. We thank you for that. And then we long for the day when we see face to face and we experience just the unbelievable joy of your presence. Um, give us hunger and thirst for that, one that, that inspires fidelity and wisdom to discern Babylon and uh, perseverance and endurance and all these things that you're calling to us in Revelation. Thank you. Hey, thanks for studying along. And wherever you are, it's our prayer that as you seek to read and hear and keep this message of the book of Revelation, that you too will experience the blessing that comes from being among those who choose to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Grace and peace. We'll see you again soon.